horizon is wide and the highway is calling. That means it's time for another episode of American Road Trip Talk. I'm your host, Gary Mance, with a welcome and an invitation to travel the byways and backroads of yesteryear, searching for America in every incomparable mile. Welcome again, ladies and gentlemen. Happy to have you along with us. Happy to have Eric Ryder at the board. He's the guy that keeps us staying in our lane where we belong. Today, we are going to talk about the central theme of the current issue, the spring 2021 issue of American Road Magazine. The theme is Return to Oz, Revisiting the Land Over the Rainbow. This issue is chock full of great stuff about the Wizard of Oz, Oz locations. There's an article, Lions and Tigers and Bears, even the Wiz Rewind. So much good stuff there in this current issue. And we're also going to be talking with Jeffrey Mark, who is the go-to guy for classic Hollywood history. People who are professional Hollywood journalists will not do a story many times unless they have checked out the story down to the last detail with Jeffrey Mark, because he is the man in the know. So we're going to get started visiting Oz once again, The Wizard of Oz being widely acclaimed as the most watched film of all time. Hi, everybody. This is Anson Williams from Happy Days. And I want to bring attention to a life-saving product called Alert Drops. Drowsy driving is one of the most catastrophic problems in America, and Alert Drops will stop it. Kids studying in college, drinking too much caffeine, overloading on these energy drinks, they end up in the hospital. Alert Drops will stop it. What is Alert Drops? Alert Drops is a simple spray on the tongue made out of citric acid, sour lemon, and water, co-created with my uncle, Dr. Henry Heimlich, creator of the Heimlich Maneuver, who said, Anson, alert drives will save more lives than the maneuver. Whether you are driving, whether you are studying, whether you're just a tired mom, whenever you need to be alert, get alert drops. A simple spray on the tongue, nothing in your system, and you're naturally awake, naturally alert. It's scientifically proven. It's doctor approved. Again, it's natural. It's been honored by the United States Congress. Go to alertjobs.com. Very important. Go to alertjobs.com and stay safe. Wondering what's on next on Alternative Talk 1150? Check out 1150kknw.com. Welcome back to American Road Trip Talk. Jeffrey Mark has been on this show before, and I'm telling you, if you have any question, any question at all about the stars, the films, down to the last golden details... Hollywood history is his beat. Jeffrey Mark is widely regarded as a an historian, but he has this verve when he talks about these stories. He makes these legends come alive. And so we're very happy to welcome him back to the show. Jeffrey Mark, glad to have you with us again. Wow, you really flatter me. Don't stop. <laughs> but we won't and we can't. Jeffrey, thanks so much. And you booked with us on short notice. So thank you for that very much. We're talking about The Wizard of Oz, the 1939 film. First of all, what a year for film. They were going big that year. And The Wizard of Oz, according to my research, is the most watched film in the history of film. Let's start with that. Is that really true? It is because you have to count in the years and years and years. The Wizard of Oz was a yearly television special, uh, mostly on CBS, where they showed the film to a television audience. Well, that that takes you from movie theaters to uh, a one-time audience of tens of millions. So absolutely. 
1939, was that not also the year in which Gone with the Wind was released? And a whole bunch of other wonderful, wonderful films. You know, the the most watched film ever, except in 1939, they had no idea they had a classic on their hands. The film was not, when it was first released, a huge hit. In fact, the movie didn't even make back its money originally. Uh, the, the, the film The Wizard of Oz has become a legend because of a legend of Judy Garland and because of television. And then DVDs and platforms where you can watch these things all you want. Yes, I can only imagine what it would be like today when you have films that may not hold a great deal of promise and so they are produced with the idea that they will go direct to video, direct to Blu-ray there. And yet the story behind it, there is mammoth. What a production it was to get the set, the story right, which I understand was subjected to many rewrites to get the right cast, starting, of course, with Dorothy, who needed to look the part and also, I think, look the age. Boy, that, that, that one couple of sentences there, I could fill three hours in. <laughs> Keep in mind, Mr. Baum's series of books, and it was a series of books. It's not a book. A series of books about Dorothy's adventures in Oz. Uh, they had to decide, all right, so which of these books are we using? And which of the characters from these books are we using? And then they changed them a little bit. So just the writing of it was difficult, finding the right director. Uh, MGM was the best place to do it, but MGM was not the original studio who had it. This was going to be a film for uh, Shirley Temple originally, and that didn't happen. What do you do? Well, you're very lucky that you have Judy Garland as one of your contract players who is a little too old to play the part, but has all of the talent, all of the charm. Uh, you know, Judy Garland did something Lucille Ball used to talk about on her television shows. We're doing something fantastical. So the actors have to suspend their disbelief. And if the actors believe in the action, so will the audience. So, so Judy was really almost a straight man for all of these fantastic characters we were able to believe it because she was able to believe it. So it was perfect casting. Perfect casting indeed. What are, and I'll just ask this generally, and Jeffrey, answer as you will. What do you consider, with your knowledge, your granular knowledge of classic Hollywood, what do you think accounts for the continuing universal appeal of The Wizard of Oz? Well, for one thing, like many classic films, it's handed down from one generation to another. So especially Baby Boomers loved this film. It's become an icon so that one generation says, hey, you got to watch this to the next generation. Also, the theme of The Wizard of Oz. Uh, I, I don't know that any film of its generation or even of its era did what The Wizard of Oz did. You have all this wonderful music. And it is wonderful music. You have these brilliantly talented people in front of the camera, behind the camera. But somehow, there are recurring themes in this film that were very adult for its time. The idea that someone would have uh, a road trip in them. 
was a new idea in the late 1930s. The idea that I don't want to just be in my own backyard. I want to get out there and explore. Brand new. The idea that this bunch of misfits gets together and collectively makes a difference in each one of their lives. Well, that appeals to almost anybody. Uh, it, It really talked to anyone who wasn't a white, straight, Christian male. So women, minorities, people of different sexual orientations, people of different religions, people who live different kind of alternative lifestyles. Uh, it's all in there. And surprisingly, MGM and the people who watched it originally didn't really notice. But as the years have gone by, everybody has noticed. And it's, it's almost a rallying film for anyone who wants to break through, get over something, get on with their lives and find personal happiness. That's so beautifully said, Jeffrey. It's associated with the pride movement. We all know that. I think of the cover of the song Over the Rainbow, Brother Izzy. They're from the Hawaiian Islands. This was a man of, shall we say, tremendous girth. And I can see that in his imagination, there at times, from what I heard, being hoisted up to play the piano. For someone like that, he let his imagination go and he's singing from the heart. I don't know anybody that doesn't tear up when they listen to that version of the song. It's a funny thing because they wanted to cut the song. When the film was first previewed before it was released to the public, in those days, they used to do previews for all other big films and they'd bring in kind of an invited audience. And the audience were asked to fill out little file cards. What did you think? Did you like the songs? Did you like the actors? What did you think about the actors? And a lot of people who watched it were a little unnerved by it. They found it hard to follow. It was a little too off the beaten track. The color was startling because Technicolor was still a new thing. And they felt that the movie was too long. And that the song Over the Rainbow, although it sets up the entire film, they felt it slowed it down. And it almost got taken out and destroyed. And yet, you just mentioned how important the song still is to people who are striving. So sometimes uh, it's just the flick of a switch or uh, a blink of an eye or a bad decision can change the course of great art. In this case, happily, it did not get changed. And we'll never know if Shirley Temple had sung Over the Rainbow, would we still even know it as a song today? We have to give Judy Garland and Burt Lahr and Margaret Hamilton and uh, all the rest of the people in the film, even the, even the little people, even people like Jerry Marin, who is the, 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 the lollipop guild guy, uh, Had there been somebody else doing that, would it have been as good? Because any great film has to be a collaboration of all the people in it. We we can't just point to one person or one thing. Um, And I've gotten to meet a lot of the people who did work on the film. And everybody pretty much said the same thing. Yeah, Judy. Put Judy up front. Without her, the film was nothing. But all these other people using their talents and and there you are that's why we are all these years later you know we're we're almost what 85 years into this film being around still talking about it 
I did want to bring up the the munchkins. There's a technical aspect I'll get to after this. I'm reminding myself. But when we talk about the munchkins and you got to know these people, what an opportunity for you. Did they did they think that they were being shown love in the movie Under the Rainbow? I thought it was a funny film. I enjoyed it. But I wonder how those folks who were in the film took that representation of their work. I cannot speak for all of the little people who were there. <laughs> I can only speak. I can, I can share with you and our friends who are listening what people said to me who were there. And I think Jerry Marin said it better than most people. He, he thought that that under the rainbow thing was absolute nonsense. The stories that have come out are stories that sound great, are a good punchline when you've got you know, 30 seconds to fill on a talk show. But it cannot really represent what happened. This idea that they were, and, and folks, if you haven't heard this before, I'm not, I'm not saying this ever happened, and I'm not making this up. This is what has been written and said that the, the people who were playing the munchkins were all just drunken, horny people who were drunk and having sex with each other and anyone who would stand still, that they had to collect them up with butterfly nets to bring them to MGM to work, is nonsense. These are people who were professional actors who were thrilled to get work in a high-budget MGM movie because in those days, MGM meant the very best in films. And there was no time for nonsense. This is an expensive, expensive film to make. And uh, I'm not saying there might not have been one or two who misbehaved, but the uh, the idea that all of them behaved this way, is, is it's very sad that anyone would really believe that. Uh, they had to work very long hours. Uh, Judy was not yet 18. She did only was able to work so many hours at a time. They had to shoot around her because of her age. I, I could list 30 or 40 technical things that would explain why there was no time for fooling around. I think I'd bore our friends out there by listing them. But just trust me, this could not have gotten made of those kinds of shenanigans that were going on on a daily basis. Thank you. Thank you for saying that, Jeffrey. Back to technical aspects. Would it have been as stunning as I imagine it to have been for audiences who paid whatever it cost to get into a movie back in the day, look at it on the big screen, and to see this dark, scary, black and white film, and here comes a tornado in Kansas, and wow, Dorothy's head's spinning, and when she wakes up, she steps into a color world to go from black and white to color that must have been just amazing from the technical perspective for the audiences to see back then. We have to remind folks who are listening in on our conversation, there were no computer graphics back then. There were no computers back then. So anything that happened had to happen either in the camera by special effects that were live, makeup, lighting, wires, whatever they could do, and then in editing afterwards. Uh, it is a misnomer to say that the first 10 or so minutes of the film are in black and white. They're in sepia. It is not crisp black and white. It, it has this brownish tint to it to make Kansas look even more drab and unappealing 
than it might have been. And also uh, to, to uh, diffuse the light and trick your eyes, so to speak, so that when Dorothy opens that door and they cut, and of course it's new cameras and it's new film and it's, it's maybe weeks or months later, the audience is stunned by not just that it's in color, but that MGM and Technicolor brought out literally a rainbow of color hues. The minute you saw the color, you saw 47 different colors. That was an amazing technical feedback then. And I can only imagine what it was like. I can remember being a little boy in Brooklyn, New York, growing up. And they'd show The Wizard of Oz on television. Now, nobody I knew in the early 1960s had a colored television set. But we'd sit on the floor watching the film and trying to figure out, okay, where does it go to color? And you can tell, even on a black and white television set, when it goes from being sepia to being crystal clear black and white, because that's how our sets picked it up. That's how we knew as kids the color was happening. And it thrilled us without the color that it was able to happen that way. Yeah, I can only imagine what it must have been like to watch The Wizard of Oz in a film theater with, you know, 100 or 200 or 300 other people at the same time and hear the whole audience gasping. That must have been something. Yes, I mean, you talk about having goosebumps. What a thrill that would have been. Let's go back to the cast for a moment, Jeffrey. Now, here's some Hollywood history. Have you ever had somebody come up to you and say, wow, The Wizard of Oz, I love it. How great Judy Garland. And look at that Frank Morgan, multi-part Morgan there. Very amazing. And then say, gee, you know, it's a shame that Buddy Ebsen got fired from that cast. What would you tell someone like that? Um, I'm glad you like the film. Uh, where in the world did you hear that Buddy Ebsen, Buddy Ebsen got fired? Buddy Ebsen did not get fired at all. Uh, for those of you who don't know, when they were working on the costuming and makeup for the Tin Man, the Cowardly Lion, and the Scarecrow, they tried different things out. They did a makeup for Buddy, who had been a big vaudeville star with his sister as a, a, an eccentric dancer, not unlike Ray Bolger. And uh, MGM had put him under contract. He'd already made a film with Judy Garland. And he got allergic. There was actual metal particles in the paint. And he got very, very ill, was put in the hospital for weeks. I mean, it, it wasn't like he was there overnight for observation. He couldn't breathe. They had to go on with the film. They couldn't wait for him. So he wasn't fired. Uh, due to an act of God, he had to be replaced. I have no idea, nor can anybody else, if the film would have been any better or any worse if Buddy Ebsen had played the Tin Man instead of Jack Haley. Uh, I have no reason to undermine the memory of anyone, but although Jack Haley had been a Broadway star and a vaudeville star of musical comedy, if we're looking at all those people who were in the film as we saw it, perhaps Jack Haley is the most lightweight as far as talent goes. Would Buddy have brought something different? I don't know. Buddy was very young, and his experience was singing and dancing. The part called for an actor. I can think of other actors who perhaps might have played the part better, 
but he also might have overshadowed the other characters. It works. As it is, it works. So I don't think it was a shame Buddy wasn't in it. Uh, Buddy, Buddy did a lot better in his life than Jack Haley did. Jack Haley is known for this, and Buddy is known for so many other things. So I, I, I think Buddy did quite well. I don't, feel, I don't feel sorry for Buddy at all. Yes, that's, that's well put, or otherwise, well, doggies, he did pretty well for himself. And yet when I see the Tin Woodman, any representation of it, I always instantly flash back and see the face of Jack Haley. So there's that, and a very good thing for Jack Haley. In terms of the awards, we just have a couple of minutes here, Jeffrey. In terms of the awards, how it was received by the critics and popularly, there, how did the Oscars go that year? It must have been monumental, the anticipation of it. I think it was a darn shame that Judy Garland was given a juvenile Oscar. I think she deserved an Academy Award for her portrayal, a real Academy Award. I, I don't understand the thinking of Hollywood in those days. Judy Garland, the actress, worked as hard as everybody else, had more lines than anybody else, had more songs than anybody else, had as many dances as everybody else, uh, worked the same long hours, six days a week. Why juvenile? Child actors, this is a pet peeve of mine, child actors even with the time they have to take away for going to school by law, which, by the way, did not happen back then, still work as hard as everybody else. And if their performance is award-worthy, it should be a real award. And I think uh, twice in her life, Judy Garland got robbed for this and for Stars Born. Uh, they didn't know how to, to, to the second part of your question, they didn't know what to expect or suspect from this film. People didn't know what to do with this film. They didn't know how to categorize it. They didn't know how to promote it. Like I said, when it first came out, there was a big question mark. The iconicism of this film came from television, which was 20 years later. And then all these years later, after eight decades, what have we seen in the wake of The Wizard of Oz? We've seen these reinterpretations of the story, almost like splitting it out in order to tell a story about one of the characters as an alternative reality or an additional one, you might say. And I'm thinking of Broadway and Wicked. And The Wiz. The and Wiz. Now, is anybody watching that in the 60s on black and white TV like you and I did there, who would contemplate Michael Jackson and The Wiz? Wow. <laughs> I was thinking of the Broadway version, which I, I saw and loved. It's not the film. It's not Judy Garland. I like what they did with it. I did not like the film of The Wiz. There was a cartoon movie starring Liza Minnelli as Dorothy called Return to Oz that had Ethel Merman and Milton Berle and all these other people in it. Um, it. It is like, as I often speak of I Love Lucy, all right, if you wanted to do it today, who would you put in the show? And the idea is nobody because it was that hundred people in that moment in history who came together and made this incredible piece of art. And the same holds true for The Wizard of Oz. The Wizard of Oz, the film, the one we're talking about, you can't remake it. You can't redo it. You can't recapture the lightning. It's struck with the right people at the right time. And thank goodness we have crystal clear digital copies to enjoy forever. 
Absolutely true. Jeffrey, Mark, thank you so much, sir, for joining us again. If it's anywhere near Hollywood, you're going to be on Trip Talk again anytime you wish. Thank you, sir. My pleasure. Hi, everybody. This is Anson Williams from Happy Days, and I'm so excited to tell you about American Road. It is the best car travel magazine in the world. They have the most fantastic adventures detailed in each magazine with all your itinerary. We could just jump in the car with your family and have the most fabulous adventures you've ever had in your life. Please, get a copy of American Road and start your own adventure. Make us part of your daily routine. Alternative Talk, 1150. Thanks so much for tuning into American Road Trip Talk today, along with Thomas and Becky Rep, co-founders of American Road Magazine. We remind you to visit our website, AmericanRoadMagazine.com, to preview the current issue. Until next time, dream well and drive safely on the American Road. We'll be right back. 